Welcome to Old Town New World. We're here at Millstone Pizza in Old Town Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Gervais. <laughs> and we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town USA. Today we're going to talk about uh, I'm going to share my experiences that I had going up to Boston and uh, going to the Harvard uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government, of Government, I think it was. And um, I was in a program called Innovation in Economic Development. It was a one-week program run by Calestis Juma, who is pretty much a badass, this dude. Um, he's been involved in everything, um, mostly sub-Saharan Africa, but really in all over the world. I mean... It's funny, every story he would tell, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I was on the advisory council that started that nation, you know what I mean? <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? It was always something like that. So um, it was pretty fantastic to uh, be in this place. First of all, it was just neat to, uh, you know, get accepted into a program in Harvard just because Harvard kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. But um, so I was very honored I've with that. I've heard of Harvard. Yeah, it's like down in, it's in Greer, I think. Yeah, I've heard of it. I think it's in Washington, D.C., and yeah, it costs a million dollars. <laughs> it's made out of gold. Um, so that was pretty neat, but um, the program was really cool. It was seven intensive days, or five intensive days, I guess, of um, six, something like that. Of uh, I mean, 7.30 in the morning to into the evening of, of discussions, presentations, all kinds of stuff. You know, uh, we did uh, kind of three days of... of theory and themes and then um, we got introduced to emerging technologies and different businesses that were doing incredible things. Um, we looked at application and government of these concepts and application to the private sector and it was just pretty insane man. It, there were 55 people from all over the world. All over the wow. world. Yeah. Wow. What's the farthest reaching? No, I meant that. It wasn't a sarcastic <laughs> What's the farthest reaching person you met? Well, I mean, we all how long were their the arms? arms. Yeah, yeah. We all had, some people had really long arms. They could reach all the way across the table. Um, who, who, who drove the furthest? <laughs> who drove? <laughs> well, there was a whole contingent from Nigeria. Um, there was uh, other sub-Saharan countries like Uganda and um, Cameroon and, and some of those. There was South Africa. Um, one lady who came from Fiji, which is, you know, an island off of uh, Australia. Or out past Australia, and um, so probably her, I guess. I guess so. I mean, exact opposite side of the world. I'm not know. a cartographer, <laughs> but that seems like the furthest. She drove the. She gets the award for. It. She drove yeah, the furthest. Drove, yeah. <laughs> she yeah. Um, there was a, a lot of Latin American and uh, South American, and there were like three or four Americans. Um, in oh, the, three or four, you were, and you were one of them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool, man. It was definitely not geared towards folks in the United States, you know. That's crazy that yeah. you were one of like three or four Americans. That's all. If that's if that number can be trusted. <laughs> um, so if I if you don't mind, I'm going to share a little bit about what we talked about there. So it was all these folks from developing nations, and basically the the underlying concept was this idea of leapfrogging. So the idea of leapfrogging is that you know, as a developing nation. You know, it would be depressing to think that they're going to need to go through a 150-year industrial revolution before they can participate in the current modern economy. And there's just no time for that, and it's not good for the 
world or anything. You know, I mean, we learn a lot from the Industrial Revolution. We create a lot of destruction, but a lot of positives. Um, <clears throat> but we're moving on. You know, we're moving on to the next era here. And so, the developing nations, how do they catch up? I mean, how, they can't follow the same path that we followed and, and catch up. Right. So there has to be this concept of leapfrogging. And an example is, um, it was in Kenya, I believe, um, where they um, came up with mobile banking transfer, invented mobile banking. And mobile banking transfer is like, on my phone, on my cell phone, I can uh, transfer money to somebody without using a bank account or um, wiring or anything like that. And the way it was created was um, they were doing micro lending in, in Kenya and in a lot of Sub-Saharan Africa. And um, so they would lend like a dollar, you know, to um, a, a, a woman so she could buy her own threads so she could make something. So she could start her own kind of business, right? And so she, they would. But then just culturally, they, they were ready to pay that money back. Like immediately, as soon as they got the dollar, they're ready to pay it back. Well, you can't drive a Jeep 100 miles in the desert to go pick up a dollar. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? So it's like, it was impractical to go collect that money. And they couldn't get to somewhere where they would pay it, no post, you know. So how do you get that dollar back? Uh, how do you pay it back? And so people were already using uh, cell phones, and they were buying pre-bought airtime, right? So like minutes or whatever you're buying, you know. And so it becomes a currency because you're buying it and now you have it and you can use it. Well, if you can trade it, you all of a sudden have a currency. You can trade airtime. So they figured out a system where somebody can trade airtime back to the lending institution, to the government, to pay them back. And then the government can take that airtime to a bank and cash it in for, for cash. And so you now have a whole new economic system that allows people to do um, banking transfer on their phones by swapping a new currency, which is uh, just minutes, essentially. And it was all invented in a country where you would think, I mean, at least I, I guess I would think, most yeah. people would think that it would be invented in you know, the US or Europe or, eight, or like Tokyo or something. It was invented in a sub-Saharan African country based on new ways to use the technology, based on the necessities of an un undeveloped type of economy. Right. You know? Yeah, so it was like an innovation that was like some it was needed like it the need for yes. it forced it into being as yes. opposed to just like hey i have an idea so instead of having to go through an industrial revolution before they have cell phones and then go through and then just follow 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 you know hundreds of years behind hundred years behind whatever it's like ways to leapfrog like how can they get into the current economy now when they haven't gone through the western style industrial revolution you know and then um I was translating a lot of this stuff into, um, in this country, you look at uh, small towns and rural places versus cities. So like, I was in Boston, which has no problem recruiting talent. You know, we talk all the time about recruiting talent, right? Well, Boston's got no problem with that. They've got universities, research institutions, uh, hip and happening culture, you know, music, they got everything that you would want. It's a booming city. And so they have the momentum that you need. Well. These towns that we talk to and we talk about who are losing their young people, who are trying to revitalize, how do they, they can't become Boston. So how do they leapfrog into the new economy? Kind of like what we're doing in Rock Hill with putting one gigabit internet into downtown Rock Hill. When most people, I would think, a lot of people would say, why do that in Rock Hill, man? Why not do it in Charlotte? I mean, there's way more people there. But it's like, that's not the point. 
you know, we're going to skip ahead. We're not going to follow Charlotte. We're going to skip ahead and do something amazing that will bring us as not only, like, able to get by in the new economy, but give us our own niche to be competitive in the new economy. That was really the underpinning uh, theme of the whole week was this idea of leapfrogging. Interesting. So, so the, like, because well, you're talking about you have a new nation and, like, they don't go through the Industrial Revolution or whatever, because the idea is, like, if you start out, it's, I mean, like, you're, you're, because it's, it's actually a really strange concept to me, the idea of starting a new nation. It's, well, like it's not a, a new nation. Yeah. It could be all, been there for a long time, uh, but it's underdeveloped. Like, it's not, there's nothing, there's no economy there, really. Okay, so sort of kickstarting a nation. Economy. Yeah, an yeah. economy. Okay. Because think about where you have economies and where people are just trying not to, I mean, to be able to get by. I mean, we're trying not to starve here, you know, in a lot of these populations. And and then we have cities that are, um, you know, like Lagos in um, Nigeria is apparently a, a booming city. Um, so they're not worried about, you know, trying not to starve. Or, you know, like we right. picture some of them. You know, like we tend to, Americans tend to picture some of the stuff from Africa. And, and it is that way in some places. So they have an economy. But it's like, what, are the, what can we do to be globally competitive? I mean, we can't wait we can't just trail behind because it will always be this poor country that doesn't really get to participate in right. in global economics. Right. Well, also when you say like, well, it makes more sense to have you know fiber in Charlotte than Rock Hill, and well, why? You know, because well, it makes more sense because it's there's I don't know there's more money in Charlotte because there's more people. You know, so it's like why? Why does it make more sense? You know. Yeah, I mean that's a good question. The underlying assumptions I think are off base. You right. know, and that would make people say, well, of course it makes more sense to put it there. I mean, why not put it in Boston? You know, instead of Rock Hill. Yeah. But but those assumptions aren't necessarily right. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, again, that mobile banking transfer would have been invented in Kenya. I mean, that's crazy, you know. Yeah, it's really strange, but there it's the same thing. It's about a, a need, you know, that creates something. Something is manifested because of a need. It's there, you know. And I mean, this place needs it needs more. I mean, it has a lot of energy. It needs more energy, and it needs more of that particular sort of modern culture and that modern that uh, what's the word? Not futurist, but that sort of like forward-reaching right. kind of like climate. So, you know, we talked a lot about top-down versus bottom-up, you know, um, like putting in this one gigabit internet in downtown Rock Hill is a top-down kind of thing. Even though Comporium's doing it and they're a private sector company, they're very much a part of the top, you know, the major infrastructure, governing infrastructure of this place, you know. And they're deciding to come in with big money, uh, a lot of power, and put this down versus the mobile banking transfer came from a bottom up. It's like some, you know, some woman just figured it out, you know what I mean? Or dude or whatever. But um, the public sector's role, I, I believe, are to, when they do things top down, it's to incentivize and inspire the bottom up stuff. So for example, in Kenya, they had to create the telecommunications infrastructure that even let people have a cell phone to begin with. Right so that someone could then blow your mind with innovation, creating something that you would have never predicted that they'd have. I mean, when they put in that telecommunications infrastructure, they probably thought, and I'm making this up, but I would imagine that they thought, this at least gets us, you know, a hundredth of the way there of where developed nations are. At least we have a basic telecommunications infrastructure. Not knowing that, that in their country, someone would innovate something that would have 
impact all over the world, you know? And that's like Rock Hill. And Comporium, instead of saying, well, you know, we need to put fiber down, because, you know, I mean, they've got fiber in Charlotte, and all the major metros have good fiber. They're like, no, let's skip over that. Let's put down something awesome. And let's see if the private sector will, you know, come up with something crazy that, that could have an impact to put this place on the map, you know? Right. Yes, I, I mean, we point that out all the time. It's about there are things you can control in, you know, an economy and in an environment. There are things you can't. And, like, you can't control that your city's not whatever, full of all these interesting, exciting people doing interesting, exciting things, but you can create opportunity. And that, yeah. that's that thing, you know, you can keep pushing and creating a platform and cre- keep making a blank canvas that says here, you know, come use this. So I think canvas is a great word for it because what the way I always say it is, uh, and I'm going to steal that, by the way, with no asterisk or trademark. Whatsoever. It'll cost you. <laughs> um, what I always say it is um, that the incentives that we need to look at are, need to be environmental in nature. In other words, instead of traditionally we look at incentives and in economic development as, like, let's we want Amazon in South Carolina, so let's give them huge tax breaks. You know, we want Boeing in South Carolina. Let's, give them, let's buy them a building, build them a building, give them huge tax breaks. We pick horses and we bet on them. And then if they leave or fail, then we're, we're screwed. Right. But, like, when you're talking about a microeconomy where you got small, 10-person businesses, you can't go around betting on 10-person businesses as a government because who knows which one's going to fail, man? And they're going right. to fail rapidly, you know? Yeah, and who knows which one's going to go on and be huge exactly. and grow like crazy. Yeah. So you create incentives that are about altering the environment that would incentivize more of us to come here, like putting in one gig of the internet or having free Wi-Fi or, you know, whatever that anybody can come take advantage of. You don't single out a business and say, I'm going to give this to you. You instead say, I'm going to create something that anybody who wants to come here and take advantage of it is welcome to try. How many great cities in America were started because of tax incentives? (laughs) None. Yeah, right. I think give or take none, they're probably around none. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it was at a place that had a thing, an opportunity, a point, a destination, and, and everything depot, grew out of that. Man, yeah. A freaking depot, if not literally, then metaphorically. You know, th- there's a great story that Calestus told us, and I'm, I should have done some research for this podcast because I'm sure I'll butcher it. But, eh. Eh. but anyway, the British were uh, wanting to build a railroad from one African city to another African city, and I, this is where my, my knowledge breaks down, but um, they didn't do a feasibility study and a survey and all this stuff because they railroaded it through Parliament and they wanted to just do it. And the people who knew that it was good because they believed in connectivity said, that we're going to get shut down by the folks who want to stifle this because we're going to go into feasibility and all of a sudden it'll never happen. So they just railroaded it through and they started building a railroad. And they started building it and they ran into a swamp and they had to stop. And so they just sat there not knowing what to do for weeks, and then weeks turned into months, and months turned into years. While they were there, trying to figure out what the hell to do with this railroad, they had to eat, they had to buy things, people would come and set up shop around or whatever, and that was the birth of Nairobi, the city of Nairobi. The whole city was born because they were stuck. A negative thing, a negative enforcement created a city. So yeah, it literally is just creating something yeah doing something yeah. yeah it was just it was essentially a depot in the sense that they were just there if yeah. people are there you're going to end up with a city you know what I mean? yeah. yeah i mean it's like wilmington you know it's like it became this well for a while i doubt it's true now just because so much film has is not in hollywood but for a long time it was like it was like the hollywood of the east coast you know and um it it, it is truly just because of the fact that 
it was a city that had you can you can be in a downtown area that looks like if you don't see the skyline looks like you're in New York City you can you can literally walk for 10 minutes and you looks like you're in a John Hughes neighborhood right. you can walk for 10 more minutes and you're in the beach you know and it just circumstances it just happened to be nobody did it on purpose it happens to be perfect for making movies Absolutely. you know that's just an accident and then see there's where I would argue that the things that were created to support that from a policy standpoint like tax incentives for movies and stuff were done well because at least if they didn't do this on purpose this is the way it worked out they were done to support something that was already organically happening it already had champions and was happening and so it was just about recognizing where you have champions and removing roadblocks from those people's ways it's not about if you create the tax incentives they will come you know it's like you know I, I preach to the point of ad nauseum where it's like you have to recognize your champions and that's where you invest who's going to do it anyway come hell or high water they're already doing it and they're going to do it anyway help those people like facilitate those people because other people will come to do what they're doing once they've already plowed the way you know what i mean like they're the guys in the front with the machete like making the path and if you help them make the path then you not only have an ally but you have a whole group of people that want to come walk that path with them. You know? Right. Now, once you have that happening, yeah, support yeah. that in every way you can. Cause you, and that's happening right now in North Carolina. They're not as welcoming as Georgia is with film production. And everything is going, like Georgia, everything is shot in Georgia. Tons of stuff gets, still gets shot in North Carolina, but there's this whole, I'm sorry, I don't know the actual, I suck as a filmmaker, I'm not abreast of it, but everyone's angry that North Carolina is... Uh, pulling back on its incentives and really? stuff. Um, yeah, and, and Georgia is like aggressively pursuing film. Um, even though Georgia, I mean, no slight to Georgia, but, and maybe I'm wrong here, one of you guys here on the podcast, correct me, isn't it just a bunch of green fields and well, trees? there's Atlanta, of course. The right, place. but I mean, like North Carolina has a coast and it has uh, mountains and, you know, there's a lot of options in North Carolina. Yeah. I think North Carolina it makes sense that so many movies have been shot in North Carolina, you know? Maybe I'm just ignorant about Georgia. Georgia has a small amount of coastline, right? They do. They also yes. have Savannah, okay. they have Atlanta, they have the uh, tail end of the Southern Appalachians. I guess discount everything I just said. It's pretty much another North Carolina that's nicer to film production, so <laughs> you, you dug your own hole in North Carolina. <laughs> but, you know, that's just to revisit that, to, uh, because I don't think that you or we are contradicting ourselves in that comment, because... Those types of incentives and things are important when they are about recognizing what you have going on, recognizing your champions, and facilitating that. Uh, like becoming allies with the people who are doing stuff anyway is what it's about, you know? Yeah, yeah finding, it's like right now what's going on with Aereo, you know? Like, it's a company that takes, shut up. So that, water. No. Oh, I thought you were laughing at my segue into Aereo. No, Chris has been waiting to talk about Aereo. Look, look, look. Um, you know, it's a product that, and if you're listening and you're unfamiliar, they take what's free broadcast signal and they allow you to rent from them the antenna that they then, at your leisure, play whatever show you want. And the thing about it is now Congress said they can't do it anymore, but all the cable companies, like, why weren't all the cable companies finding ways to create an environment where that doesn't some you know startup doesn't come do what they're not doing you know why weren't they on top of that situation like it's very obvious how things are changing 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the status quo. Thank you. I'm good. Thanks. You know, this it's those who are successful in the status quo are incentivized to maintain the status quo, and that, and I don't think that's, you know, malicious in nature. It's just incentives are powerful things, man, and um. So you have a successful business model based on the status quo, then you basically you create an entire infrastructure on maintaining the status quo, and then, and then it's never it's never the case if you look throughout history. Oh, thank you. It's never the case that um, the leaders in a category become the leaders in the disruptive disruption category, like because when you have in, innovative disruption. You know, uh, creative disruption, destructive creative, whatever you call it. Basically, when when like you know, it was not going to be the uh, movie studios, or it was not going to be HBO that created Netflix, or it was not going to be, or you know what I mean? It's not going to be yeah. the the people that had a lock on the market are not going to create the thing that destroys the mar- the lock on the market. You know. Right now, is there a difference between that and it, are the people, are the leaders and whatever, not going to innovate that? That well, well, you know what I—I I don't mean. Good question. What I've seen because does innovation always mean disruption? That's one of the big things we talked about on Wednesday in our uh, at this program up at the Kennedy School. Um, what is innovation? What is entrepreneurship? Is it always disruption and destructive in nature? Um, Dan Dan Eisenberg argues that. Entrepreneurship is about creating extraordinary economic value. And so he says that actually people that come into a business and just radically improve its systems and processes with time-tested things that aren't in any way innovative and takes it from being a million-dollar business to a hundred-million-dollar business are entrepreneurs because they've they've created extreme economic value. Other people argue that that's just really good freaking management. And that's not entrepreneurialism because other people argue that entrepreneurialism is based on the idea of innovation, which, and they argue that innovation is based on uh, disruption um, or some type of destructive creativism. You know, so it's a good question, man. But if you look at like, like, you know, when the when the radio was the dominant form of communication of media communication, and then the television came along. Well, it was not the dominant radio. Uh, companies that pioneered television because television was destroying the idea that radio was the dominant media and it's they're just institutions that are about excelling at radio they almost inherently can't be the institutions that destroy that notion you know but can they innovate in the different ways to do radio sure well I'll give you another example look at what Apple did with um music with iTunes and the downloading the song for 99 cents and all that stuff like Apple was not in they're not a music I mean right. company you know they're not a, a record label or any of these big ones you know and then when Napster totally destroyed the whole kind of disrupted everything Apple figured out it doesn't have to be the status quo big corporations or complete chaos what if we made it easier to download stuff instead of fighting against whether it's legal or not instead of doing bit torrent or something crazy like that instead of having to be a ha- freaking hacker to get a hold of a free song if you could just pay 99 cents and get a song 
And it's so easy and cheap, why not? And, and they, they dominated in that space, you know? So they, without disrupting, well, they kind of disrupted, but it had already been disrupted. They came in and settled the market by offering a new business model that was stable and legal. And people jumped all over it, dude. Right, and so, and it's, it's funny that we don't talk about Apple more, but you know, that's an example of a company that, because it seems like we, and already on this podcast, it came up this idea of creating new things and why you do it, and is it for money, you know, or why you do whatever. Do you do whatever for money, or do you do whatever because you need to do it? And as a human being, you need to grow, and you need to find, you need to discover. Um, and I mean, Apple obviously is an example of a company that does both, you know? I mean, they make so much money, yet they continually seem to be, at least, you know, the perception is that they're motivated by this constant need to discover and find new ways to do things and better ways to do things. And it's interesting to see how that has changed since Steve Jobs exactly. has passed. Because it's almost, it's been very difficult for them to maintain that perception. And True. think about it, it's predominantly the same people working there, probably. Right. Um, but it doesn't have the same, since, since they've released a couple things, since he's been you know, gone, it's not the same. Yeah. And it's not that I'm like a big, like I don't have Steve Jobs posters in my yeah, room no, and stuff. I, I mean, it's just everybody feels that way. Yeah, I, yeah, you don't, I don't think, yeah. If you're paying attention to American culture, I mean, yeah, I think you respect Steve Jobs. Yeah. You know, like, and it, it, in a way it makes sense. And we've talked on here before about do, does the uh, sort of like blobbing up of all of our knowledge and consciousness mean the death of the quarterback and the individual champion and um i think you know I mean, probably not because you look at that you know like steve jobs it, it is it is it is the idea of a single person who absolutely is not motivated by making money he's, he's motivated by discovery of, of of human existence and that of course is really really lucrative and he's going to make a lot of money um, and I doubt that Steve Jobs has a problem with that, but the, right, you know. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, I would I would actually argue that someone like Steve Jobs is motivated like by it's the thing of like money means more of of that path. That path is money keeps you down that path. Money means more access to the future. It means facilitating your discovery. Power to affect change. I mean, money is a very powerful thing. You know, uh, Dan Eisenberg had made a comment. He said um, that. Richard Branson and Bill Gates both tweeted within like a week of each other that um, money's not important to happiness. And he was cracking a joke. He's like, oh yeah, so in other words, for the first billion it's real important, but then the rest of them, you know, it's really not important anymore. And he was saying, because we were you know, a group of people predominantly from developing countries, and again, I was from the US, but he was saying in that context, how freaking insensitive. Like to say that when your audience is a global audience, because there's people who, if they could make a dollar a month, it would it would save their family. You know, like yeah. to think that um, money's not important is yeah. because you're just insanely yeah, wealthy. I, I, you know, I think that, and in a way, like there's an assumption that yeah. And the truth is, there are people who are so there's they just are so well. I don't know. There are people out there who probably would live off of literally whatever it took to literally survive. But for the most part, I think we all know, you, yeah, you need to survive. You need to not be miserable. It's like they always say, like, um, that it's like money problems that break up most marriages. You know, I mean, that makes sense. Like, 
money can't make you happy, but a lack of money can completely destroy you. Well, there's all these studies that say that like you, you get happier with more money up until you get to a certain place, and then you start to decrease. That makes complete sense. Yeah. yeah, I think everyone. It's a relatively low amount. I mean, it's not like uh, crazy low, but it's like it's like less than a hundred thousand dollars that you start to hit a diminishing point of return on how much money you make. Yeah, I mean, I can honestly say that it, it, it you know, like in my experience anyway, it's like, it's miserable to not have enough money to to survive. It's horrible, it sucks, it's awful. But, I mean, your actual experience and the way you move through life, um, once that those needs are met and you're okay, yeah, honestly, man, I mean, from there on, like your real sort of experience, you know, I mean, what's the great value of having, what if you're Bill Gates and you have so much money you can't spend it, it's so abstract. Who cares? You it know. It's so abstract. And it's, yeah, and I mean, like, and if you're somebody who can afford to have a house that's not falling apart, then from then on, what what's the difference? You know. Yeah, it's it's this like novelty that you can do and make people say and do whatever you want, but you have to have a particular personality to be even being bought into that, which many would argue is a disorder. Like, if you are truly bought into the fact that you can money can allow you to do whatever, you probably have neuroses. Like you probably have a psychological disorder. Well, you know, there's interesting, it's interesting, man. There's this concept called financial freedom, and it's based on that if you can achieve financial freedom, which most people never do, but it means that you, you only work because you choose to, because you have, you have your finances in, in a way that you are taken care of. Now you think, oh, well, that's for the insanely rich. Well, no, it just depends on how much money you spend. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. whatever lifestyle you live. So. I mean, I think that, um, you know, like my wife and I love to travel whenever we can. And when we do, we like to stay in nice hotels and eat at nice restaurants. Well, that takes a lot of money. So then it's like, okay, well, what's the trade-off for that? That means I need to work a lot, you know what I mean, to make that money. So I have to make a decision. Do I, do I want to work for that money so that we can do that? And then do I think it's a good trade-off? Or do, or do we want to quit doing that? And then I, I need less money to get by, you know? Right. But if you could never do that again, would your real true quality of life be affected at all? It's a good question. I would tend to say, oh, yeah, it'd be affected. But then, honestly, what's important? I mean, how right. much would I laugh? Probably the same amount that I laugh. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I'm not talking about you go into where you have financial woes. Yeah. I just mean you're in a situation where you can't do that anymore. It would suck, and you'd miss it, but... Financial woes should be a cereal. <laughs> <laughs> I take some financial woes in whole milk. I think also I think that's I think most songs at some point in the song you should have some financial woes and, in it. And the financial doo-wop <laughs> or two. Some financial doo-wops. Yeah. <laughs> We've been podcasting for a while, so we could probably wrap it up. Oh yeah, dude, we killed it. Yeah. Good. Well, anyway, man, I you know there's so many things that we talked about. Um, up we did in, not uh, talk about your experience at Harvard yeah. very much. There's so many things that we talked about at the Kennedy School that are applicable to stuff we talk about all the time. You know, this idea of leapfrogging and um, looking for ways to excel, um, entrepreneurship, as we were just talking about, you know, um, this idea of uh, innovation as being creative and destructive at the same time. And then, you know, just lots of things. Um, core competencies and, and underlying technology application stuff, which I'd love to get into on another podcast. But it was, it was a really powerful experience. and. Um, while the content was great and the ideas were great, just being around people from all over the world who were in the same way that we do here every Wednesday, just eager to have 
meaningful conversations that uh, and not like kind of uh, bashful about being serious and silly at the same time you know what I mean it's just a, an incredible experience so I, I really am grateful uh, to have had that experience and I appreciate you guys um, let me ramble about it a little bit and uh, talk about other things. So I guess we'll uh, see you next week on Old Town New World.